0: This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Modern Art of Education. This is Lecture 9, entitled Arithmetic, Geometry, History, given on August 14, 1923. Arithmetic and geometry, indeed all mathematics, occupy a unique position in education. Teaching cannot have the necessary vitality and lead to a real interplay between the souls of teachers and students unless teachers fully realize the consequences of what they do and the methods they use. Teachers must know exactly the effect produced by the treatment that children receive in school or anywhere. We are beings of body, soul and spirit, and our physical nature is shaped by spirit. Teachers then must always be aware of what takes place in the soul and spirit when a change occurs in the body, and again the physical effect when spirit or soul is affected. Many things affect a child's imagination, such as painting or drawing, which becomes writing, or botany, when taught as described yesterday. And above all we must consider a higher member of our being, when I referred to as the ether body or the body of formative forces. First, human beings have a physical body. It is perceived by ordinary sensory perception. In addition, we have an inner organization, perceptible only to imaginative cognition, a supra sensory ether body. Further, we have an organization, perceptible only to inspiration, the next stage of supra sensory knowledge. These expressions need not confuse us, they are merely terms. Close parenthesis. Inspiration provides perception of the astral body and the I capital, the true human self. From birth until death, the ether body of formative forces, the first suprasensory human member, is never separate from the physical body. This happens only at death. During sleep, the ether organization stays in bed with the physical body. While we sleep, the astral body and I being, Leave the physical and ether bodies and re-enter at the moment of waking. It is the physical and ether bodies that are affected when children are taught arithmetic and geometry, or when we lead them into writing from a foundation of drawing and painting. All this remains and continues to reverberate in the ether body during sleep. On the other hand, history and biology, which I talked about in yesterday's lecture, affects only the astral body and I-being. We take the results of these studies out of the physical and ether bodies and into the spirit world while asleep. After we teach a child plant lore or writing, the effects are held in the physical and ether bodies during sleep and continue to vibrate, whereas the effects of a history lesson on human nature are different because they are carried out into the spirit world by the I-Being and astral body. Thus the effects vary greatly, depending on the lessons. We have to understand that all impressions given to children that have an imaginative or pictorial quality tend to be perfected during sleep. However, whatever we tell children about history of the human being, works on the soul and spirit, and tends to be forgotten, losing its quality and growing dim during sleep. In our lessons, therefore, we must determine whether the subject will speak to the ether and physical bodies or to the astral body and eye. Thus botany and rudimentary writing and reading, which I mentioned yesterday, affect the physical and ether bodies everything learned about history, I will speak about teaching this later, or about the human relationship to animals, affects the astral body and I-being, the higher members that leave the physical and ether bodies during sleep. The remarkable thing, however, is that arithmetic and geometry affect the physical, ether, and the astral bodies and the I. Arithmetic and geometry are a sort of chameleon, Their very nature is to harmonize with every part of our being. Whereas biology and botany lessons should be given at a definite age, arithmetic and geometry should be taught throughout childhood, though, of course, in ways suited to the various stages. It is most important to remember that the ether body begins to function independently when it is abandoned by the eye and astral body because of its inherent vibrational forces, it always tends to perfect and elaborate anything brought to it. In terms of our astral body and eye, we are stupid, so to speak. Instead of perfecting what has been communicated to these members of our being, we make it less perfect. While asleep, however, our body of formative forces continues in a suprasensory way to work with all that it received as arithmetic and the like. We are then no longer in the physical and ether bodies. They continue to calculate or draw geometric figures and perfect them at a suprasensory level. If we are aware of this and plan our teaching accordingly, we can generate great vitality in a child's being. We must, however, make it possible... The ether body to perfect and elaborate what it previously received. In geometry, therefore, we must not begin with abstract intellectual constructs, which are usually considered the right foundation. We begin instead with inner perception, by stimulating, for example, a strong sense of symmetry in children. We can begin to do this with even the youngest children. For example, one draws some figure on the blackboard, adds a straight line, and indicates the beginning of symmetry. Then we try to help the children realize that the figure is incomplete, and using every means possible, get them to complete it themselves. Thus we awaken an inner active urge to complete what is unfinished. This helps them activate the correct image of a reality. Teachers, of course, must have creative talent, which is always good, Above all, they must have flexible, creative thinking. After assigning these exercises for a while, the teacher moves on to others. For example, we may draw a figure like this on the blackboard and try to awaken an inner spatial impression of it in the children. It's sort of a flower form. We then vary the outer line and then gradually learn to draw an inner form corresponding to the outer. In one, the curves are simple and straightforward. In the other they curve out at various points. We should explain to the children that for the sake of inner symmetry in the inner figure they should curve inward exactly where the lines curve outward in the outer figure. In the first diagram a simple line corresponds to another simple line whereas in the second an inward curve corresponds to an outward curve. Or we may draw something like this followed by corresponding outer forms, so that we make an harmonious whole. We now try to move from this to another exercise, in which we do not let the outer figures come together, but make them run away from each other into the undefined. The children get the impression that this point wants to move off and perhaps one has to chase after it with these lines, but cannot catch it, it got away. Then they realize that the corresponding figure must be arranged so that because this ran away, that must be especially bent inward. I can only suggest these principles and there's a drawing. Briefly, by working like this, we give children an idea of asymmetrical symmetry, In quotes, thus preparing the ether body during waking life so that it continues to vibrate during sleep and in those vibrations it perfects what has been absorbed during the day. Then the children awake in an ether body, as well as a physical body, inwardly and naturally stimulated to activity. They will be filled with life and vitality. This cannot be achieved, of course, unless the teacher has some knowledge of the ether body's activity. If such knowledge is not present, any effort in this way will be mechanical and superficial. True teachers are concerned not only with the waking life, but also with events during sleep. In this sense, it is important to understand certain things that occasionally happen to all of us. For example, we think over some problem in the evening and fail to find a solution. In the morning, however, the problem is resolved. Why? Because the ether body of formative forces continued its activity independently during the night. In many respects, waking life is not a process that perfects, but one that disturbs. We need to leave our f- physical and ether bodies alone for a while, so that we do not make them stupid through the activities of the astral body and I. Many things in life substantiate this fact. Using the example just mentioned, when you wake up in the morning, you might feel slightly restless, but you suddenly discover that the solution came to you unconsciously during the night. These things are mere stories. They happen just as conclusively as any experiment. What occurred in this particular case? The work of the ether body continued through the night, and you were asleep the whole time. This is not normal or something to strive for, but we should strive to help that etheric activity continue during sleep, and we do this, when we begin by communicating a concrete representation of space instead of beginning geometry with triangles and the like, in which the intellect is already in evidence. In arithmetic, too, we must proceed in this way. A pamphlet on physics and mathematics by Dr. von Barival, a teacher at the Walder School, gives a good idea of how to bring concrete reality into math and geometry. The pamphlet also extends this whole way of thinking into the realm of physics, although it deals primarily with higher mathematics. If we go into its underlying spirit, it is a wonderful guide for teaching math in a way that corresponds to the natural needs of a child's being. It created a starting point for stimulating reform in the method of teaching mathematics and physics from early childhood. To the highest levels of that instruction, we must be able to take what the pamphlet says about concrete concepts of space and extend it to arithmetic. The whole point is that everything arithmetic conveys externally to children, even counting, destroys something in the human organism to begin with a unit and to begin with a unit and add to it piece by piece nearly destroys the human organism. But the organism is made more alive when we begin by awakening an awareness of the whole, then awakening an awareness of the members of that whole. We begin with the whole and proceed to its parts. This must be kept in mind even when children are learning to count. Usually we learn to count by observing purely physical external things. We begin with one, a unity Then add two, three, four, and so on, unit by unit, and we have absolutely no idea why one follows the other or what happens in the end. We are taught to count through an arbitrary juxtaposition of units. I am well aware that there are many methods for teaching children to count, but very little attention is paid to the principle of starting with the whole and proceeding to the parts. Children should first see the unit as a whole. Everything is a unity, no matter what it is. Here we have to illustrate this with a drawing. We must therefore draw a line, but we could use an apple, just as well, to do what I am doing with a line. This, then, is one. Now we go from the whole to the parts or members. Thus we have made a one into a two, but the one still remains. The unit has been divided into two, thus we come to the two, and we continue, and another partition brings the three into being, unity always remains the all-embracing whole, and so we go through four, five, and so on. Moreover, at the same time, using another means, we can give an idea of how well we are able to hold in the mind everything that relates to number and we discover just how limited we are in our power of mental presentation when it comes to numbers. In some countries today, the concept of number that is clearly held in the mind's eye goes only up to ten. Here, in England, money is counted up to twelve. But that really represents the maximum of what is mentally visualized, because in reality we then begin again and repeat the numbers. For example, we count up to ten, then we begin counting the tens. Two times ten is twenty, three times ten is thirty. Here we no longer consider the things themselves, but begin to calculate the number itself. Whereas the more elementary concept requires things themselves to be clearly present in the mind. People are proud of the fact that they use very advanced methods to count compared to primitive people who depend on their ten fingers. But, there is little basis for such pride. We count to ten because we feel the numbers of our hands. We feel our two hands and ten fingers symmetrically. Children also experience this feeling. And we must evoke the sense of number through transition from the whole to the parts. And then we easily find another transition which leads us to counting in which we add to another Eventually, of course, we can move on to the ordinary one, two, three, and so on, but merely adding one or more units together must not be introduced until the second level, for it has significance only in physical space, whereas dividing a unity into members has an inner meaning that continues to vibrate in a child's ether body, even when we are no longer present. It is important that we know such things. After teaching children to count in this way, something else becomes important. We must not proceed to addition in a dead mechanical way, by merely adding one item to another in series. Life arises when we begin not with parts of addition, but with the whole total. We begin with a number of objects. For example, you throw down a number of little balls. We've gone far enough in counting to say there are fourteen balls. You divide them up, extending the concept of parts even further. You have five here, four there, and five again. You have separated the total into five plus four plus five. We go from the total to the units that comprise it from the whole to the parts. The method we should use with children is to set up the total for them first and then let the children perceive how the given total can be divided up. This is very important. One does not harness a horse with its tail to the front. Likewise when teaching arithmetic we must go the right way. We start from a whole actually present in the total, a reality, and then separate it into parts. Later we find our way back to the ordinary sum total. Continuing in this way from a living whole to separate parts, one touches the reality behind all mathematical calculations. The vibration of the ether body of formative forces. This body leaves a living, excuse me, this body needs a living stimulus for its formative perfecting activity, which it continues with no need for the presence of the astral body and I being and their disturbing elements. Your teaching will be essentially enhanced and vivified if, in a similar way, you reverse the other simple forms of calculation. Today one might say children are upside down and must be righted. For example, try to get a child to think in this way, If I have seven, how much must I take away to get three? Instead of, what is left after I take four away from seven? Having seven is the real thing, and what I have left is equally real. How much must we take away from seven to get three? Beginning with this kind of thinking, we stand in the middle of life whereas with the opposite form we face an abstraction. Proceeding this way, we can easily revert to the other eventually. Thus, again, in multiplication and division, we should not ask what will result when we divide ten into two parts, but how must we divide ten to get five? The actual aspect is given. In life, eventually, we want to get to something with real significance. Here are two children... Ten apples will be divided among them. Each is supposed to get five. These are realities. What we must first contribute is the abstract part in the middle. When we do things this way, things are directly adapted to life, and if we are successful, the usual purely external way of adding, by counting one thing after another, with a deadening effect on the arithmetic lessons, will instead become a vivifying force of particular importance in this area of educational work. We must really consider the subconscious aspect of human beings, that is, the part that not only continues to work during sleep, but also works subconsciously during the waking hours. We do not always think of everything. We are aware of only a small fragment of our soul's experience, but the rest is always active. Let's create the possibility for children's physical and ether bodies to work in a healthy way, recognizing that we can do so only when we bring atmosphere, interest and life into our lessons in arithmetic and geometry. A question has been raised during this conference about whether it is truly a good thing to continue teaching subjects for certain blocks of time, as we do in a Waldorf school. The right division of lessons into periods is the most fruitful. In quotes, block teaching means that one lesson will never encroach on another. Instead of setting up daily schedules with definite hours, arithmetic from 8 to 9, history, religion, or whatever from 9 to 10, we give one main lesson on the same subject for two hours every morning for three to five weeks. Then we move on to another main lesson for perhaps five or six weeks on another subject, which, if you like, develops from the previous work, but is again taught for those two hours. The children thus concentrate on one subject for some weeks. It was asked if this might not have the result that children forget too much of what they have been taught. If the lessons have been taught properly, however, the previous subject will continue to work in the subconscious during the next subject. In block lessons, we are always dealing with the subconscious processes in children, There is nothing more fruitful than to allow the results of the lessons during one period to rest in the soul and continue to work in a person without interference. It will soon be apparent that when a subject has been taught correctly, when it is time to take it up again for another period and it is recalled to mind, it emerges very differently than it would have had it been taught poorly. One ignores the factors at work by arguing that because a subject might be forgotten, it isn't right to teach this way. We must naturally deal with the possibility of forgetting, for just consider all we would have to carry in our heads if we could not forget, and then remember again. The whole of forgetting, therefore, as well as the actual instruction, must be factored into real education. I am not saying that we should rejoice when children forget. We can safely leave that to them. Everything depends on what passes into the subconscious in a way that enables it to be recalled. The subconscious belongs to our being as much as the conscious. In all these matters we must realize that the purpose of education is to appeal both to the whole person and to that individual's various members. Again, it is essential to begin with the whole. First there must be an understanding of the whole and then the parts. First we grasp the whole and then the parts. If we count merely by placing one object next to another and then adding them up, we eliminate the wholeness of being human. We appeal to the whole human being by first visualizing the total as a whole and then proceeding to the parts that make it up. When we teach history we are open to the danger of losing sight of the human being. We have seen that in a truly beneficial education, we must give everything its proper place. Plants must be studied in connection with the earth, and the various animal species in connection with humankind. Whatever the subject, the concrete human element must be retained. Everything must be related in some way to the human being. When we begin to teach history, we must be aware that although children at this age can see the connection between plants and the earth, and see the earth itself as an organism, and they can see the human being as a living synthesis of the whole animal kingdom, these children cannot form any real ideas of, quote, causal connections, close quote, in history. In an ordinary sense, we may be very skillful at teaching history describing one age after another, and show how the first causes the second, and we may describe the history of art, and how Michelangelo followed Leonardo da Vinci in a natural sequence of cause and effect, but before the age of twelve, children do not understand cause and effect, which is a conventional factor when adults study history. Just as merely pounding on a piano has no meaning, This way of teaching history means nothing to children and it is only through coercion that they will take it in at all. Its effect on their souls is like one eating a stone. We would not dream of giving one's stomach a stone instead of bread, and likewise we must also nourish the soul with food it can assimilate, not with stones. If history is to be communicated in a living way to people, We must first awaken a concept of time that is connected to the human being. We might have three history books, one on antiquity, another on the Middle Ages, and yet another on modern history, but there would be little sense of time in them. But suppose I begin by telling the students, quote, you are ten years old, so you were alive in 1913. Your father is much older than you, and he was alive in 1890 and his father was alive in 1850. Now imagine stretching your arm back to your father, who stretches his arm back to his father, your grandfather. Now you have reached back to 1850." The students then begin to realize that three or four generations represent just about one century. The generations run backward from the twentieth century and bring students to their very early ancestors. Therefore the 60th generation of ancestors leads to the era of Christ's birth. If the classroom is large enough, it may be possible to arrange the children in a line and have them stretch their arms from one to another so that the 60th child represents an ancestor living at the time of Christ's birth. Space thus becomes time. Teachers who have fertile inventive minds will find other ways to express this. I am merely suggesting a principle. In this way children begin to see that they are part of history. People such as Alfred the Great, Cromwell and others are made to seem as though they were ancestors. All of history becomes a part of life at school when it is presented as a living concept of time. History must never be separated from human beings. Children must not see it as just so much book learning. Many people seem to think that history is contained in books, although it's not always quite that bad. In any case, we must use every possible way to awaken a sense of history that lives with human beings in its flow. Once a living view of time has been awakened, we can begin to imbue history with life and soul, just as we did for arithmetic and geometry by developing living perception. There is a lot of quibbling today about the nature of perception, but the whole point is that we must develop living, not dead perception. In the symmetry exercises I described, the soul lives within the act of perception. This is living perception. Our goal is to awaken a living perception of space, and by teaching history in a living way to children of nine to twelve, we fill them with an element. That arises from the inner qualities of heart and soul, not merely from the nature of space. <coughs> History lessons must be permeated thoroughly with the quality of the heart. Thus we present it as much as possible through images. Students must see real forms, and there must never be described, and these must never be described with cool detachment. One's descriptions must be colored with both morality and religious feeling, without making the mistake of using them as examples for moral or religious admonition. Above all, history must take hold of the students' feeling and will. They must be able to experience a personal relationship with historical individuals and ways of life in the various eras. Nor do we need to limit ourselves to describing people. We could describe the life of a twelfth-century town, But whatever we say must go into the feelings and volition of the children. They must be able to live the events, thus forming themselves within them by arousing their own sympathies and antipathies because their feelings and will are stimulated. This shows that we must always bring the element of art into our history lessons. Art comes into play when, as I often describe it, we exercise true economy in teaching. This economy can be exercised when teachers have thoroughly mastered the subject before entering the classroom. One no longer needs to think it over because, if prepared properly, the subject is present in a flexible way for the teacher's soul. Teachers must be so well prepared that the only thing left to do is to shape the lesson in an artistic way. The problem of teaching is thus not just a matter of interest, diligence, and devotion on the part of the students, but mostly on the part of the teacher. Lessons should never be presented until they have been deeply experienced within the teacher's spirit. Of course, the faculty must be organized so that the teachers have enough time to fully and intensely experience the lessons. It's terrible to see teachers walking with books among their students as they wrestle with the subject. Those who fail to see how wrong this is in terms of true educational principles are also unaware of what occurs subconsciously in their children's souls, nor are they aware of the terrible effects of such an experience. If we teach history out of notebooks, children come to a certain conclusion, not consciously but subconsciously. The unconscious intellectual conclusion, rooted deeply in a child's organism, is this. Why should one learn all these things? The teacher doesn't know them and must use notes. Anyone can do that, so there is no need to learn them. Of course, children do not reach this conclusion consciously. Nevertheless, judgments have even greater force when rooted in the subconscious life of heart and feeling. Our lessons must vibrate with inner vitality and freshness from the teacher's own being. When describing historical persons, for example, teachers should not have to make an effort to remember dates. I already described how we should communicate a concept of time through an image of successive generations. Another aspect is this. When teaching history, it must flow with elemental force from the teacher. It must never be abstract. The teacher, as a human being, must be a vital factor. It has been said many times that education should affect the whole human being, not just one aspect. While it is important to consider what subjects children need to learn and whether we need to focus more on their intellect or their will, the question of a teacher's work Is just as important. When it is a matter of educating the whole human being, teachers must be human in the fullest sense of the word. Not those teaching is based merely on mechanical memory and facts, but teach out of their own being. That is the real essence, and I think the word here is whose. Let me read that again. When it is a matter of educating the whole human being, teachers must be human in the fullest sense of the word not those whose teaching is based merely on mechanical memory and facts, but that teach out of their own being. That is the real essence. The end of Lecture 9